Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today, bright and early. You're the ones that don't need any sleep, right? That's who's here this morning. I knew you are going to get an hour or less, but you came for pancakes. Did you guys enjoy that? Can you help me thank the volunteers who uh, made pancakes? I had some bacon this morning. It was delicious. I thought, I love daylight saving time. Bacon at church. How cool is that? Hey, uh, my name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church, and uh, I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go ahead and open them to John chapter 21. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these laying around you somewhere nearby. You can pick that up. It's page 757 in that Bible. Uh, And the the question I want to open with today, and what I want to be talking about all all day, is this question. Is the Bible still relevant? Is the Bible still, can I still take it and apply it to my life? This is a question I get a lot of times from non-Christians. I've got uh, some friends in my life who are not followers of Jesus. And uh, if I talk about the Bible, sometimes I'll get this question, is the Bible still relevant? And sometimes uh, some of you who who are Christians but don't really spend a lot of time in Scripture will ask that question. And I think the question behind the question is this. Uh, This book was written thousands of years ago uh, by people who are dead. And uh, how can they have anything to say about my life? You know, my daughter tells me sometimes, you have no idea what it's like to grow up in the 21st century. And like, after being hurt and offended, my next response is, she's right. And so maybe your question is, these people have no idea what it's like to live in the 21st century. How can it possibly, how can these people who are long dead have anything to say about our life, our world, our culture today? Well, I want to share with you today that it is relevant that this book is still relevant to our lives. And not only am I going to try to convince you of that if you're not already convinced, but I want to show you how. And so what I want to do today in the 30 or 35 minutes that I have is not just to convince you, somebody's phone's on, uh, is not just to convince you of that, but I want to show you how. It's going to be a very practical message, uh, something that everybody, no matter where you are on your faith journey, something that you will take away. Uh, And so we're in week four of our series called Eat the Scroll. It's the fifth week, but the fourth message. And we've been talking about the importance of studying God's word and meditating on God's word. And if you're going to have a relationship with anyone, I mean, well, relationships don't really work unless you talk to each other, right? And so one of the primary ways that God talks to us is through his word. And so as a church, we've been doing this 40-day challenge. We passed out these cards the first couple of weeks. If you didn't get one, you can grab one at the Info Hub. There's still a few there. It's also on our app. But what we're doing is the whole church is studying the same scriptures every day for 40 days. And I hope you've been keeping up with us on these studies. Uh, I've heard lots of great stories. There's been lots of fruit. And so this week... I asked uh, on my Facebook page if anybody had a great story, and uh, John Perry, who's the head of our host team here at Genesis Church, uh, had a story, and I thought, I'm just going to ask John to share that from the stage. So can you help me welcome John Perry up here to the stage? Good morning, everyone. Um, So Steve asked me to talk about an experience that I had while doing the soap, and my experience came on day three. We were instructed to read Hebrews chapter 5. And the scripture that I studied on was chapter, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Um, this happened on February 17th. So rewind 20 years to February 1996. And that's when I was baptized for the first time, or for the only time. And (laughs) I'm still drinking milk. I'm not eating food. By this time, I should be teaching. 
and it was a gut punch for me. I mean, I, it was, it's a struggle to this day that I should be teaching people, that, but I'm still drinking milk. So through the soap method, I'm, I mean, I'm pouring myself into it, and I'm finally getting the intimate relationship with Jesus that I've wanted. I, mean, I lead a team here. I'm here every week. But I never had that close personal relationship until I started doing the soap method. Thanks, John. That's great. I, I can't tell you how many stories I'm hearing of people who, like for the first time or for the first time in a long time, are in Scripture every day. I, I had 50-year-olds and, and 25-year-olds uh, who have been Christians their whole life, and I've never, but I've never been in Scripture. And so that's why it's so important that you read the Word and, and, and study the Word and meditate on the Word. And if you're new with us today, uh, start today. You might think, oh, man, I'm sorry I missed it. I missed the first four weeks. I'll, I'll catch it next time. No, no, don't do that. Start today. Um, you can pick up this card at the Info Hub. Like I said, it's on the app as well. And you can always go back after the 40 days and pick up the passages you missed. Because, because the goal of this exercise is not to get to day 40 and go, glad I, get, glad I made it through that. You know, that's over. I'm done. That's, that goes against everything we've been saying. The goal instead is to, um, to start a lifelong habit of being in the word, to, to follow the pattern that Jesus set for us. You know, time after time in scripture, it says we're to follow the example of Jesus. He said, walk, walk as Jesus walked, to, to follow the pattern that he set. And Jesus knew the scriptures better than anyone in the history of the world. And we want to follow his example. And so there are lots of different approaches to studying and meditating on God's word. But as John said, we've been using one called the SOAP method, which we introduced in week one. SOAP, S-O-A-P, stands for scripture, observation, application, and prayer. Uh, these are the four things that we're encouraging you to do every time you open up the word of God. And so two weeks ago, we skipped last week. Um, we had a great message from Shepherd Community. But two weeks ago, Paul Mumal was here and he talked about S, scripture. He, if you weren't here, if you missed that, now, he talked about why these scriptures, like why are these particular 66 books uh, the ones that are chosen to be a part of God's scripture? How do they fit together? And he showed us how each part of the New Testament is unique, how each part supports one another. He did it all in 35 minutes. Dude is a machine. It was fantastic. But I hope what you heard clearly from that is that the Bible is all about Jesus, like the whole thing, it's all about Jesus. Even the Old Testament, even the stories in the Old Testament, before Jesus, the man, came on the scene, the scriptures called out, cried out for a savior. By the way, the resource I think that does the absolute best job I've ever seen of describing that is uh, this book right here. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, yes, it's a kid's book. And yes, it has great illustrations and uses little tiny words. Uh, but every story in this book ends with Jesus. And so if you go to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden that's in Genesis 3, uh, the story says, but one day God himself would come. And if you go to Noah's Ark, you read the story of Noah's Ark, it says the story talks about God's plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, to send his own son one day, a rescuer. And the story of Abraham and Sarah, they deliver a baby, Isaac, uh, but it says one day God would send another baby, a baby promised to a girl who didn't even have a husband, but that baby would be everyone's dream come true. Every story points to Jesus. I love this book. My wife and I, when our kids were little, we would lie in bed with them and read this book, and we would just be weeping because these stories pointed to Jesus. The, the stories of people in the Old Testament needed a Savior. They cried out for a Savior. And let me just say this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, one of the most glorious days in your life is when you realize that you need a Savior too. 
Like right now, maybe you feel like you're strong and you're good enough and you can hold it all together. You don't need any help. But, but one day, I believe one day, you're going to realize that you've messed up and that you've strayed so far from the person that God made you to be and the purpose he has for your life. And when he hits you with that, John used the word gut punch. When you get that gut punch and you realize you need some help getting back on track and you submit your life to Jesus Christ, God will send his Holy Spirit to live inside of you and to to correct you and to guide you in the ways of righteousness. And you will weep with joy that you have a rescuer too. We all need a savior. The Bible is all about Jesus All of scripture points to him. And so this morning, we want to move on from that S in SOAP, uh, as Noah said in the video, to the two letters, O and A, observation and application. Let's look at how this old book can be applied to your life and your circumstances. Now, the key to studying the Bible and getting the most out of it, I believe, is the same as the key to studying just about anything. It's learning to ask the right questions. And what I find is that at different stages of my life, I've been able to get different application from the same piece of scripture. You guys see that? I've, I've been studying the Bible for uh, 15 years or more, probably. And uh, I know many of you have been studying it longer than that. But what I find is every time I go back to the same passage, I can get something different out of it. Now, who, somebody, in, people in this room have been studying longer than 15 years. Raise your hand if you've been studying the Bible longer than 15 years. Do you guys find the same thing? Like you go back to the same passage? Yeah, okay. See, I think that's how it works. That's what Hebrews 4 means when it says that God's word is alive and active right? That it's always, it's living, it's moving. It always has something new to teach us, a new, new way to instruct us, a new way to speak to us, a new way to, to guide us, a new word of peace or encouragement or conviction based on what we're facing in our lives. God's word is living and active. And if you learn to ask the right questions, you'll continuously see things in scripture that you've never seen before. And no matter how many times you've read it. And so I believe there are three questions we should ask every time we sit down to meditate on Scripture. And these questions will help us with observation and application. And these are in your notes. I've put them in there. If you grab the note card on the way in or if you're on the app, you can look at the message notes section. And here are the three questions. Number one, what does it say? What does the Scripture say? In order to study God's Word, you need to understand what it says. Now, I'm not talking about... Like, what are the words on the page? This is where you, you know, in the S in Scripture, you write down the Scripture uh, word for word. But I mean, what does it say to you? What, what do the words say to you? What words stand out from the page to you after you've prayed over that Scripture? I'm going to show you how this works by walking through this account from John 21. I asked you to turn there a minute ago. I want to give you a little background first. This happens after Jesus is crucified. And so he's crucified. He's buried. He's in a tomb. He's there, and then on the third day, God raises him up from the dead. And what we know about that is after God raised him from the dead, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and then he appeared to uh, the disciples. And then the second time he appears to the disciples, he sits down to eat with them. And he has this encounter with Peter, who was probably his closest friend while he walked on earth. And that's where we're going to pick up, John 21, 15, just these three verses. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And so when we ask what this scripture says, there are a couple things that probably stand out right away. 
Uh, First of all, Jesus is asking Peter this question, do you love me? He's obviously looking for a certain response that he doesn't get the first two times, right? And so every time Peter, so why did Jesus ask that question three times? That's something that might stick out to us when we're looking at what does it say? Well, every time Peter answers, he tells him to take care of his sheep. Well, what does that mean? Maybe that's something we're going to write down when we say, what does it say? Jesus says, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. We notice that every time Jesus asked, Peter responds, you know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. So these are the kinds of things we can get from asking the question, what does it say? Questions that we have that stand out from the text. And then that leads us to the second question, which is maybe the most important one, certainly the one we're going to spend the most time of. What does it mean? So we ask, what does it say? And then we'll ask, what does it mean? Now, you might think, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? Well, yeah, sometimes but it always means what it means. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, ladies, say you're walking down the hall at work, school, wherever you go, and uh, an attractive man walks by. If you're single, okay, you might turn to your friend and say, wow, he's hot. But you don't mean that he's actually hot, right? You don't mean that he's generating heat, like that the molecules in his body have sped up to the point where they're producing energy and he's radiating hot air off of his body. That's not what you mean when you say somebody's hot, right? You mean that he's attractive. In the same way, if somebody is really friendly and inviting and hospitable, we might say that she's warm. But again, it has nothing to do with temperature and everything this time to do with her demeanor. If someone has a great personality and we love being around them and they're funny and they make us feel all tingly inside, you know, we might say that that person's really cool. But again, their molecules haven't slowed down. They haven't stopped producing body heat. They're not cold to the touch. They feel dead when you touch them uh, because they're cool. They're just cool because they have a cool personality, right? Those are words that we use that don't really mean what they say. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but did you know it's possible that a person could be hot, warm, and cool all at the same time? (laughs) So like my wife, my wife's not in the room, so I can talk about her for a minute, right? You won't tell her, right? My wife is hot, she's warm, and she's cool. Now, my kids would argue that she's maybe not cool, all right? But my wife is hot and warm and cool. So imagine for a minute, I wrote a story, a paragraph or something about my wife, and a thousand years years from now, some, some scholar who is in a different culture, speaks a different language, picks it up and translates it, and it says that my wife is hot. If it means what it says, he might say, apparently in that culture, people's body temperatures would change with their degree of physical appearance. But that's not what it means. Well, it's no different when it comes to Scripture. So how can we know when a passage means what it says and when it just means what it means? Well, this is really deep stuff, right? I know this is a little bit complicated. It's not that complicated, trust me. Uh, There are uh, some questions, some things that we can look at to figure out what something means. Three things, and these are uh, on your notes also. But the first one is this, it's the context. So if I'm talking about my wife and I say she's hot, then you know it means I think she's attractive. But if I'm talking about my daughter and I say she's been sick and I felt her head and she was hot, you know, it means she has a fever, right? It's all about the context. And so two different meanings for the same thing. So you have to look at the context for my statement. Uh, And uh, in, in the passage we just looked at, Jesus tells Peter, for example, to feed his sheep. Now, in that culture, it's pretty common for people to have livestock, right? Is that what he's talking about, to keep sheep and lambs? Well, we know, need to know the context to answer that question. So some context questions are like this. Uh, what are the surrounding verses about? What's the whole chapter about? 
What's the overall message of Jesus? And what's the overall message of the book of John where we find this passage? Knowing what we know about Jesus, do we think that as he's about to leave the earth, the most important thing to him is making sure that his livestock gets fed? Those are all context questions, right? So we ask those questions. We, we don't read anywhere in John or in any of the gospels, actually, that Jesus was literally raising a flock of sheep. And we don't see that. He's not a shepherd. We, we do know, however, context, that he often referred to people as sheep. Uh, scripture says that he had compassion on people who were like sheep without a shepherd. In John 10, he says that his sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. And he's talking about people there. So we can deduce from the context that Jesus isn't calling Peter into a life of being a shepherd. He's calling him to ministry. He's saying, take care of my people. That's what we get from context. Okay, so uh, we, we use context. The second thing we do is we clarify. We're going to clarify. Uh, are there words in this text that could have different meaning? If so, what do those words need here? mean here? We need clarification. So, for example, uh, I'm going to say a word. I just want you guys, this is word association. You shout out whatever comes to your mind, okay? The word is pen. Okay, so I, I heard pencil. I heard prickly. <laughs> I heard a few other things. Uh, how many of you thought something used in sewing? Raise your hand if you heard pen. One, okay. How many of you thought uh, a writing utensil? All right, a big, big crowd of that. How many of you thought uh, something you wear on your shirt or lapel to tell, you who, tell people who you're voting for? Okay, couple. How many of you thought, um, why did you laugh at that? I don't have a pen on. Um, how many of you thought an enclosure where you keep farm animals? Anybody think that? Yeah, okay. Larry, could have counted on you. Now, if I, it would have helped if I'd have given you the spelling, right? If I'd have said the word is P, pen, P-I-N, then you would have known it's not a writing utensil. It's not a place where you keep farm animals. But still, there are like 60 uses, 60 plus usage for the word pen. It can mean a lot of different things. Well, we have the same issue in Scripture. I mean, the Bible was written primarily in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament, and used 11,000 different words. Most of our English translations use only about 8,000 words or 3,000 words fewer. When you try to express 11,000 different words with only 8,000 or so, some of the deeper and richer meaning is going to be left out. And so if you wonder why there are so many translations of the Bible, I've got a few of them up here, um, you have to think that that's part of the problem, that we have fewer words to describe uh, the same thing. And so uh, if you think of the most used example, probably the one you've heard is the English word love. We have one word that means love, and we use it in so many ways. I love donuts. I love running. I love my wife, right? Same word, not the same meaning. But the Greek language in the New Testament had four words, at least four words from love, and, and three of them are used in our scriptures in the New Testament. It allowed the writers to be more precise uh, in everything that they said. And so there are three used in the New Testament. The first one is the word eros, E-R-O-S. Eros is the word for romantic love. It's where we get the English word erotic. This is the kind of love that I would have for donuts, okay? And <laughs> romantic love is eros. So the next word is phileo. Phileo is a word that means brotherly love. Uh, I have phileo love for my friend Cameron up here. Now, ironically, Cameron last week went to Philadelphia, which uses the Greek word phileo as part of its name, which is why it's called the city of brotherly love, right? Because it's the city of phileo. That's Philadelphia literally means the city of phileo. 
So um, that's what that is. And then there's the Greek word agape, which is unconditional love. It's self-sacrificing love. It's the love Jesus had for his disciples. It's the love Jesus showed for us when he went to the cross to make a payment for our sins. And so when you see the word love in the New Testament, you need to think about clarifying which of these words is being used. Is it erotic love? Is it brotherly love? Or is it self-sacrificing love? You need to look at that root to find out. But you say, I don't speak Greek. I don't speak Hebrew. Guess what? Neither do I. I haven't had a Greek class since high school. I got an A in it, but it's been a minute since I had it. Um, I've never taken a class in Hebrew. And I'm guessing somebody just decided they're never coming back to this church. But I want to let you in on a couple of resources that can really help with that. The first of all, first is this. Uh, it's a study Bible. Uh, if you've got a standard Bible that just has scripture and you want to get into some deeper meanings of the word, the study Bible has several definitions at the bottom of each page. It's about half scripture and half definitions. This one I have here is a New King James Version. Uh, there are, there's one for every translation. But the top half of this page, you probably can't see this, is scripture. The bottom half is definition of some of the key words. And so if you had something like this, you can do it. But um, rather than investing a lot of money in this, the second one I want to point you to is a resource that a lot of our teaching team uses. And it's called Blue Letter Bible. It's uh, available online. It's free, blueletterbible.org. And that's uh, on your note card. This is what the homepage looks like. And what I want to do is just take a minute. I'm going to walk through a couple slides to show you how this works. And so uh, if I wanted to enter, if I wanted to look at that John 21 passage you see up in the upper right, it's uh, I've entered John 21 and NIV, which is the translation I usually preach from. And so you can hit uh, the go button there and it'll take us to the next slide there. And it will bring up, uh, here's John 21, 15, 16, and 17. So here are the three verses. I've just kind of zoomed in on those so you can see those. And if you want to look at the specific meaning for words in that verse, you can hit the tools button over there to the left, and it'll take you to the page that looks like this. And what you can see is on the left-hand column, it has the English translation. And then on the right-hand column, it has the Greek word written both Greek and English. And then you can look at, uh, in this case, this is verse 15. And uh, if you look at these three passages, by the way, the word love comes up seven times in these three verses. But what kind of love is it? Well, we find out. We can look here. Jesus is asking, do you love me? He says, do you agape me? Right? So he's saying, Peter, do you love me with an unconditional love? So we can see that uh, when we look at this passage. And so in, uh, in verse 15, that's what he asked. And then we can look down a little bit lower and we can say, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Hmm. I brotherly love you. So wait a minute. Peter changed the word. We can't really get that in the English translation, right? He didn't really answer what Jesus asked. Well, maybe that's a clue to why Jesus asked him three times, Right? Okay, so then we go to the next verse, 16. He says, do you, uh, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know, I phileo you. And then in verse 17, something different happens. And here it is. We can see it. Jesus says, Simon, son of man, do you phileo me? Jesus switches the word. He says, do you brotherly love me? Now, here's what happened. Jesus knows that Simon Peter didn't unconditionally love him. Because he predicted he wouldn't. 
We can go back, if you know scripture, you can go back to John 13. We see Peter promising Jesus, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. In fact, this is an interesting context of this verse too, because what's happened here is that uh, Jesus has predicted somebody is going to betray him. And Peter stands up and above all the other disciples says, Lord, not me, never me. I will lay down my life for you. And so when, jo- when Jesus comes back and sees him in this situation, the, what's the first thing he asked him? He says, Simon, son of man, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than all these other disciples? Why did he ask that? Because uh, right before Jesus died, he promised him, if everybody else betrays you, Lord, I will not, I will not deny you. He says, I love you more than all of these guys is what he was trying to say. And so when Jesus comes back and meets him again, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And you know that had to cut Peter right to the heart, right? Lord, you know that I love you. But Jesus says, I know you don't agape. I know you don't unconditionally love me because you already showed when I was on trial that you were gonna deny me. Now, I I don't want you to think that Jesus is really calling Peter out here. I'll tell you why in a minute. But you know, when Jesus asked Peter for the third time, do you love me? Changes the word, do you phileo me? Peter's mind must immediately go back to that time when Jesus denied him or when Peter denied him for the third time. It says that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him three times. Well, Peter had denied Jesus three times right before he died, right? Verse 17, he says he was hurt. So, uh, most of passages of scripture are not that complex. I don't want to scare you with this, okay? But when you find a passage that you don't understand, I think uh, a study Bible or blue letter Bible is a great tool to really understand those words. I want to equip you uh, for how to study those passages. Most verses we can take at face value, but still I hope you see how clarifying words can really help us understand what's going on and capture what a verse means. So we use context, we clarify. Finally, to find out what a passage means, we'll use cross-reference. In other words, what we want to do is ask, how do other verses explain this verse? We we never want to take a verse or a passage out of context and use that for our argument. I've talked about this before, but, but we want to figure out how our interpretation of a verse lines up with all of the rest of Scripture. After all, the Bible itself is the best commentary on the Bible. And so we want to interpret an unclear passage in light of a clear one. If you don't do that, you're going to take some verse that really is meaningful to you, and you're going to take it way out of context, and you're going to end up with some weird idea, and you're, going to start, you're probably going to put that on a coffee cup, and you're going to start talking to people about this. Hey, I saw this verse in the Bible, and I think it means this, and some of your friends are going to agree with you, and they're going to start following you, and all of a sudden, I'm going to say something that contradicts this piece of theology that you've created, and you're going to leave the church, and you're going to start your own church, your own denomination. And then eventually these people that are coming are going to be centered around this one verse that you've flown way out of context. And then eventually what's going to happen is people are going to start to think you're weird and you're going to move to some South American country. You're going to be a cult. You're going to turn into a cult. And the news cameras are going to show up at Genesis Church. They're going to find out there'll be helicopters hovering overhead. And some Sunday, I'm going to leave this auditorium. I'm going to go out the door. And all the reporters are going to be standing there. And they're going to say, what happened to so-and-so? And I'm going to say, I told them not to take that verse out of context. Please don't do that. There are things the Bible means and there are things the Bible doesn't mean. And the way you tell what it means is to compare a passage to the rest of scripture. How does it fit in with the rest of scripture? So in the case of John 21, we read that verse, that response that Jesus has for Peter. And we, we could make the case if we took it out of context that he's upset or angry at Peter because of his denial. Or that he doesn't believe Peter loves him, so he asks three times, and that's why he had to do that. But if you cross-reference it with other verses, 
you can quickly see that's not what happened, what's happening here. Jesus isn't rubbing it in Peter's face that he denied him. He's not, he's not using this verse to disqualify him. On the contrary, if you look back at Matthew 16, compare it with another verse where, Jesus, where Peter first makes the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, uh, Jesus makes him this promise. He says in Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But I want you to see, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's made him a promise. Jesus makes Peter a promise that he is going to be the one to carry this message after Jesus dies. And I want you to know that Jesus is not one to break a promise. He's already predicted, he's already promised that Peter will have a huge part in building the church, just like he predicted his denial. He's already promised him a ministry. Side note, how can that be? How can this guy that said three times he didn't even know who Jesus was after walking with him for three and a half years being his closest friend, how can that guy have a ministry? Because we serve a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And aren't you so glad about that? Peter gets a second chance. And he takes full advantage. In fact, what we see later in Acts 4 is that Peter moves from phileo love, from brotherly love, into that full agape, unconditional love for Jesus. Peter and John are teaching some people in the temple. This is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. They're talking about the dead coming back to life, about how this Jesus that they knew to be dead had been raised to life. And the Sanhedrin or the ruling body of the Jewish people call them in, Peter and John. They call them in. They want to punish them for talking about resurrection of the dead. They warn them just to shut up about it. Stop talking about that guy, Jesus. He's dead. He's gone. And then this happens in Acts 4.19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. You know, Peter goes from denying he ever knew Jesus to being confronted by him in bodily form, to being restored to ministry, to then being defiant in the name of Jesus saying, I don't care what you do to me. I will lay down my life for this. But you never know that if you don't bother to ask what it means. Now, there's one more question I want to cover really quickly. It's the third question. You probably see it on your notes. You think, are we going to get out of here in time? We're going to be good. It has everything to do with application. And I know this is quick, but if you get the observation right, if you get that part right, the application usually, usually, usually comes a little easier. The third question we want to ask is this, what will I do about it? In light of what God is teaching me through this passage, what do I need to change in my life? What do I need to do, do more, do less, stop doing? Who do I need to talk to, minister to, share a meal with? What do I need to give to, give away, or give up? Sometimes this answer doesn't come easy, and you'll have to pray. And we're going to talk all about that next week, how we, that fourth letter in the acronym, that P, how we pray through scripture. But your prayer might be as simple as, Lord, show me one way. I can put this into action in my life today. Three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What will I do about it? I think asking these questions can help us reach a deeper, more profound understanding of Scripture. And why is it important? Why is it important that we have a deep understanding of Scripture? Because God has a promise for us. And already said, God's not one to break a promise. But in Proverbs 2, God, God wrote this. My son, if you accept my words and you store up my commands within you, if you meditate on scripture, 
turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Understanding is our observation. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, cry aloud for understanding, that's prayer. And if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. That's your application. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. And if we wanna walk in the light of Jesus, if we wanna follow his example, if we wanna follow the pattern he set for us, we can do no better than to meditate on his word, observe it and apply it to our life. And I hope this has been a really practical way uh, for you to do that. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful that it is living and active and that every time we go back to it, it says, has something new to say about our situation. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, and for leaving us with the word and with your Holy Spirit to guide us, to correct us, and to walk with us as we go through life, God. We look to you for our wisdom. We look to you uh, for life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.